when we experience uh, new beginnings, whether it's in our personal lives, whether it's in a business venture, whether it's in a workplace or a new career or a new stage of, of our lives, um, if things go, go well in the beginning, you may have heard this phrase, um, you're off to a good start. Have you heard that phrase? Of course you have. Uh, we, we hear it often. We may even say it about other people. Everyone wants to be in this position. Uh, this is what we desire in, our, in all our life experiences. Whatever we put in our hands to do, we hope that we have a great start. We want our children to have a good foundation so that they can be off to a good start in their adulthood. Young adults desire to get a good education and then a good first job so they can be propelled into a long-term career path. Uh, adults uh, want to think well and prepare well for their retirement so when they begin their retirement, they're on a good foundation for retirement. When entrepreneurs start a new business, they want to do all they can to start a new company with the right foot forward. But what happens when, with the best of intentions, with the best of efforts, things start off in a wrong way? Starting off in a wrong way is often harder to recover from. It's, first of all, incredibly discouraging. Uh, it calls us to go back to the drawing board, to rethink the entire system, and figure out what is the right way to start again. Sometimes we cannot undo the wrong we have done. No one enjoys bad starts, and yet it shows up in our lives in all kinds of surprising ways. Can you think of any incidents in your life uh, in which you can look back and say, wow, that was a bad start. That was starting on the wrong foot. Give yourself a few moments to consider some of those examples in your own life. The Bible tells us that every one of us actually starts life with a bad starting point. It's not because of the family you grew up in. It's not because of the environment you were raised in. It's worse than that. It is our human nature that we are born with. We come into this world inheriting a human nature that has been corrupted by sin and bent towards sin. Even if we grow up in godly homes, even if we grow up around good godly churches, we must remember that we start this life with a nature inclined towards rebellion and inclined against rebelling, particularly against God. That is our natural inclination. That is how we start life, every one of us. God in His mercy is a God who redeems bad starts. He's a God who takes that which has gone bad and is able to give it a new start. We see this truth in the way God establishes the monarchy, uh, the kingship in Israel in the Old Testament, especially when Israel gets to the place of, of publicly installing their first king. 
So let's go to the story of the Old Testament, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 10. We'll be reading from verse 17 all the way to the end of chapter 11. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, I encourage you to uh, perhaps look at the Bible to the person next to you. He might or she might have a Bible. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we have Bibles we'd love to give you uh, at the end of the service so you can come to church with a Bible. Uh, but let's read together God's Word. Uh, here is God's Word, 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mitzvah, and he said to the people of Israel, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought you up, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses. And you have set to him, set a king over us. Now therefore, present yourself before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. He brought the tribe of Benjamin near by its clans, and the clan of the Mekratites was taken by Lot. And, the, and Saul, the son of Kish, was taken by Lot. But when they sought him, he could not be found. So they inquired again of the Lord, Is there a man still to come? And the Lord said, Behold, he has hidden himself among the baggage. Then they ran and took him from there. And when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulder upward. And Samuel said to all the people, Do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among all the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! And Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose heart God had touched. But some worthless fellows said, How can this man save us? And they despised him and brought him no present, but he held his peace. Then Nahash the Ammonite went up and besieged Jabesh-Gilead, and all the men of Jabesh said to Nahash, Make a treaty with us, and we will serve you. But Nahash the Ammonite said to them, On this condition I will make a treaty with you, that I gouge out all your right eyes and thus bring disgrace on all Israel. The elders of Jabesh said to him, Give us seven days, respite, that we may send messengers through all the territory of Israel. Then, if there is no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. When the messengers came to Gibeah of Saul, they reported the matter in the ears of the people, and all the people wept aloud. Now behold, Saul was coming from the field behind the oxen. And Saul said, What is wrong with the people that they are weeping? So they told him the news of the men of Jabesh. And the Spirit of God rushed upon Samuel, when, on Saul, when he heard these words, and his anger was greatly kindled. He took a yoke of oxen and cut them in pieces and sent them throughout all the territory of Israel by the hand of the messengers, saying, Whoever does not come out after Saul and Samuel, so shall it be done to his oxen. Then the dread of the Lord fell upon the people, and they came out as one man. 
When he mustered them at Bezek, the people of Israel were 300,000, and the men of Judah 30,000. And they said to the messengers who had come, Thus shall you say to the men of Yabesh Gilead, Tomorrow, by the time the sun is hot, you shall have salvation. When the messengers came and told the men of Yabesh, they were glad. Therefore the men of Yabesh said, Tomorrow we will give ourselves up to you, and you may do to us whatever seems good to you. And the next day Saul put the people in three companies, and they came into the midst of the camp in the morning watch and struck down the Ammonites until the heat of the day. And those who survived were scattered, so that no two of them were left together. Then the people said to Samuel, Who is it that said, Shall Saul reign over us? Bring the men, that we may put them to death. But Saul said, Not a man shall be put to death this day, for today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. Then Samuel said to the people, Come, let us go to Gilgal, and there renew the kingdom. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. There they sacrificed peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all the men of Israel rejoiced greatly. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for our hearts. Would you bow with me in prayer? Bow your heads. Ask God. Let's ask God to bless the preaching of his word in our hearts. Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. As we have heard it now, would you bless the proclamation of your word. Make it fruitful for our hearts. Give us ears to hear through the Holy Spirit. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. You might be wondering, what does the public installation of the first king of Israel have to do with me? Why should I listen to this story? It's because here we see how Israel messed up in asking for a king. The starting of the monarchy, which was part of God's plan uh, from the beginning, from the book of from the book of Exodus, even the book of, in the book of Genesis, uh, in Exodus and then in Numbers, in Deuteronomy, God has referenced that he will have kings over his people. Kingship was part of God's plan. But the way they come to ask, the people of Israel, the way they come to ask for the king, um, it spoils the plans. And in this story, as we see the first king of Israel identified and installed publicly, there are three but moments that spoil the scenes in the story. Each of these but moments represent a downturn in the story. Each of these but moments spoils the goodness of the events, the goodness of what has taken place. And after each of these but moments, the Lord shows up to recover to intervene, even to save that which has gone bad. So therefore, this morning, we will look at the God who, who redeems a bad start. And he redeems not only a bad start, but as, as the people continue to make bad choices, we will see the, how the Lord continues to redeem. Uh, as our story unfolds, there are four scenes in this story. And each of the... Uh, each of these will help us understand and unfold the, the big theme of, of presenting God as a God who redeems a bad story. 
Let's start with the first scene. The first scene can be, if you like taking notes, the bad start, God's people turn away from him, from the Lord. When Samuel calls the people to gather to the Lord at Mitzvah, he intends to anoint a king for them, their first ever human king. And this is the watershed moment for Israel. Until now, they were led by prophets and judges. But from this moment in their history, the people of God are going to be governed by a human king. And now you would expect at this watershed moment that it would be started with words of praise, words of encouragement. A revolution is taking place. A, a new advancement in, in the history of God's people is perhaps taking place. Enthusiasm, highlighting the strategicness of what's taking place would all be Expected ways to start off this coronation day in the history of Israel. But instead of the joy and the jubilant enthusiasm of such a transition of, of new leadership, instead of all that, Samuel begins his address on this strategic moment. And he declares the Lord's assessment of what they are actually doing that day. Look with me to verse 18 and 19 in, verse ten, in chapter 10. Thus says the Lord, and this is Samuel speaking, not on his behalf. Here Samuel is saying verbatim the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I brought up Israel out of Egypt. I delivered you from the hands of the Egyptians and from the hand of all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saved you from all your calamities and your distresses, and you have said to him, set a king over us. We want a new leadership, God. We want, a, we want a human king. In these verses, the Lord recounts his faithfulness towards his people. He's a God who has saved them from the bondage of Egypt and from all their past enemies. But the Israelites turn their backs against the Lord. Asking for a human king. What is particularly painful in this exposure of rebellion is that God describes himself as the one who saves his people from their calamities and their distresses. This is not just in the past tense. God is not simply saying, I've saved you in the past. God is also saying, I am the God who saves you. Present tense, present moment experience. I'm not just a, a God of your grandfathers. I'm not just a God of the old-time great stories. I'm a God the, of the present who saves you of your calamities, of your distresses. Friends, I wonder if, if, this is, if this is a truth that you hold on to today. Do you consider God to be the God who saves you as well from your distresses, from your calamities? We can trust him. I wonder what are the distresses that you may be facing and going through. Are you turning to the Lord in the midst of them? The particular details of the, your distresses are different than what happened in Israel at that time. Well, friends, the God of the Bible is the same God yesterday, today, and forever. I wonder, are you tempted in ways like the Israelites have been? to disregard 
to forget that God is a God who currently is able and willing and worthy of trust to be a God who saves from our distresses. The Israelites disregard this truth about God because they seek human solutions to their crisis. And by the way, that's always, that's always a, a way to fall for turning away against the Lord, seeking a human solution instead of turning to the Lord. That's exactly what they do here. They sought a human solution. And God now exposes their rebellion. And God says, you have rejected me in turning to a human solution. When we start going in the wrong direction, it's an act of kindness to be pointed out that we are going in the wrong direction. If you turn on a street that is the uh, wrong way, there are signs. Do not enter. Don't go that direction. And uh, if you continue to ignore that sign, there might be a police officer on that street and he sees you going the wrong direction and he can pull you over and give you a ticket and you're like bummer now i gotta pay three hundred dollars for a ticket wow that's not fun it's certainly not fun but it's a lot cheaper than going and colliding head to head with another vehicle from the wrong direction it's never fun and pleasant to be rebuked or confronted with your sin it's never fun to, to have to go through the consequences of, of, of that rebuke. Of needing, needing to be called to turn away. Friends, in the long run, it's a lot better to have to deal with, with the consequences of our sin in the, in the immediate run than continue to go in the wrong direction and then reap the consequences of an eternity for rebelling against God. Oh, friends, when we go in the wrong direction, it's an act of kindness to be pointed out that we're going in the wrong direction. And this is what the Lord is doing here. In starting the public installation of Israel's first king. By, by pointing out their bad start. It may feel like spoiling the party. It may feel like, thanks God. That's what we get for, for the first installation. The first coronation day. You rebuke us. Yes. Because it's better for them to know. How wrongly they have turned. Early on, exposing rebellion is never pleasant. But it's needed when it takes place. Uh, friends, receiving rebuke may feel like a sting to you. I wonder if you see, though, I wonder if you see the goodness of God in exposing the wrong of His people. Or I wonder if you see the goodness of God in, in that sting that calls you out early on in your sin. It's like getting a shot, getting some medicine. When the needle goes through the skin, there's a little sting. It hurts. Ouch. Friends, it's better to experience that and get the medicine for the sin than be left with a disease in your system and reap consequences that can never be recovered for later on. Have you ever told anyone that you want them to bring correction to you if they see you turning in the wrong direction? Are there people you're giving permission to? You say, hey, if you see me going the wrong direction, would you come and tell me? Friends, part of being a Christian means that we 
propel each other as, as a church family, as other followers of Christ are surrounded with us and commit to follow Jesus together. We tell them, if you see me taking, going in the wrong direction, would you come and tell me? Because it's actually good for our souls to be in a community that we, we commit to one another, to love each other well, not only by encouraging us when things go well, but also by calling each other out lovingly when things go in the wrong direction. Scene number two, despite rebellion, the Lord continues to care and provide for his people. Despite rebellion, the Lord continues to care and provide for his people. Some Bible interpreters suggest that the Lord's provision of a king at this moment is a means of God's punishment. In other words, they would say that God is giving them what they want. A king who has the qualifications of impressing the nations. And there is some merit to this interpretation. Um, after all, the primary characteristic that, we, that is repeatedly spoken about Saul before he gets installed as king is that he is the tallest of Israel. There's, friends, just to note, there's nothing wrong to be tall. Uh, Jaron and I and Zach, if, if you brothers feel like there's something wrong with us, no, it's don't, don't take the application that route. But in the book of 1 Samuel, uh, the only other tall pe- person is Goliath. He's an enemy of God's people. And it may feel like facing the enemy Let's prepare for having a tall king who would eventually be able to face a tall enemy. And if you keep reading the story, you know that Saul, even with his tallness, that will not be enough to get him to, to face the Goliath. But here, its uh, tallness is, is brought out again. So some people would say God is actually punishing Israel by giving them King Saul. That's one interpretation. That's one way to to interpret the the unfolding of the story. But there's another way of interpreting the choice of of Saul, at least at the beginning, uh, to see the choice of Saul in a more positive light. After all, Saul came from the smallest of the tribes of Israel. Actually, the tribe of Benjamin was not only the smallest of the tribes, but at the end of the book of Judges, the tribe of Benjamin was almost exterminated because of their horrendous sin, a sin that happened particularly in, in Saul's hometown, Gibeah. So Saul's background was not a glamorous background, neither statistically nor spiritually. And yet here, God is choosing a man from a very tribe that got almost exterminated. From that tribe, God is actually choosing the first king of Israel. At this point of the story, even if Saul is not the ideal candidate, nevertheless, the Lord chooses him. And the Lord's selection is so powerfully illustrated uh, that earlier in chapter 10, a few days prior to this event, Samuel already anointed Saul as king. That anointing took place in secret. Now it was time for the Lord to show publicly who it is that the Lord is appointing to be Israel's first king. And the means that the Lord uses to show his choice is the casting of lots. Now, casting lots is not how you and I need to go about trying to find out God's will. 
In the Old Testament, however, when God worked through his prophets, the casting of lots was one method used by God to prove and provide God's absolute choice of someone without showing any human involvement in the decision. Uh, For example, the casting of lots was used earlier in the book of Joshua to reveal who had stolen the forbidden things that were devoted to destruction from, from the city of Jericho. At the battle of Ai, the people lost a very, against a very, very significant army, a very small army, a very insignificant army. And uh, Joshua was perplexed. If they were able to conquer Jericho, how come they lost against Ai? And the Lord revealed it was because someone in the camp of the Israelites rebelled against God's decree that no Israelite should keep for himself what was devoted to destruction at Jericho. And God said, call out all the tribes. Cast lots. And uh, the tribe that will be chosen, cast another lot for all the, all the clans in that tribe. And that's what they did. And from all the clans of the all, all the and one clan was chosen, and then another lot was, was, was thrown to find out who in the clan actually sinned. And it was discovered that Achan was the man. See, the Lord used the casting of lots to actually reveal the will of the Lord in such a way that no human could actually have any involvement in that decision. And this is what's taking place here. The point of the Lord using the lots was so that no one could accuse Samuel that Samuel had a preferential choice in in the choice of the first human king, that it was God's choice, unilaterally. It was a divine choice, so God chose Saul. Now, let me ask you, what is the probability that through all of all the people in Israel at the time, casting lots several times, the lot would fall on the same person that was secretly, secretly anointed earlier in chapter 10. What's the chance? What's the probability? Think of the hundreds of thousands of people who could have been chosen. And here the Lord shows his power over, de- over controlling the details of how the, ro- the, the, lots, uh, the, the lots get rolled out. The Lord shows his power over even events that seem to be purely coincidental. We read in Proverbs sixteen thirty three, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Friends, this is a God we serve. This means that God's power is so great that even that which seems to be for us as mere random acts, the throwing of lots, even that is under the power of God. This is the power of the God who works uh, through our life's experiences to accomplish His purposes. Friends, with God, there's no chance. There's no accident. There's no coincidence. Everything is under his rule. God's provision does not stop merely at identifying the king, who the king is. This is in in the second scene. There is a but moment. So far, like, whoa, how did that just happen? The Saul who was secretly anointed at the beginning of chapter 10 is now publicly identified through the casting of lots. Whoa! And then there's a but. And uh, the but is, after Saul is identified, 
he's missing in action. He's hiding. He can't be found. I wonder if you noticed that in the choice of Saul, when, when Samuel found Saul in chapter 9, it was because some donkeys were missing. The Lord has some irony here. The, the missing of donkeys leads to the identifying of Saul. And now that Saul is identified publicly, he goes on missing, intentionally, on his own choice. Now, some, some take uh, this act of Saul um, in two ways. There's two ways to, to read it. Some look at it positively as if it would be a sign of humility on Saul's part, uh, that somehow Saul didn't want to be in the, in the spotlight when, uh, when this moment of, of the casting of lots would, be, would, would happen. But others take this sign from, from Saul in a different way. And I'm, I'm part of the latter category. Uh, I th- I'm convinced that this is not a positive response from Saul. It's actually a negative response. Uh, it's possible. I, I think it's Saul here is intimidated and fearful of receiving the responsibility of kingship. He's perhaps afraid of the, of the failure, of being perceived. What if I'm not going to make it? Saul is likely struggling here with the fear of man. And this will become evident later in the book where Saul will care too much about what people think of him. This will be actually a a significant part in 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 Saul's heart that will lead him to disobedience against the Lord because he will care more about what people think instead of caring what the Lord thinks. The Lord made it very clear to Samuel a few days earlier, hey, I'm choosing you, and gave Saul three signs to affirm him, hey, you are my choice. And now Saul goes on missing in action. He's trying to run away from the Lord's, um, from the Lord making it happen. God's provision does not stop merely with selecting Saul publicly. When, when Saul goes on missing in action, the people seek the Lord in prayer. Lord, is the man you chose among us? What a simple prayer. What a basic prayer. But they do the right thing here in turning to the Lord in, in this misgiving, in this but moment that happened that seemed to have, may have potentially ruined the coronation day. How can we install a king when he's missing? And the Lord is gracious again and says, yeah, I, I know where he is. He's not, he's there. I'll tell you exactly where he is. And there was no GPS tracking, by the way, back then. The Lord doesn't need that. The Lord said, he's hiding among the luggage. So they go and find Saul among the luggage. God's provision actually helps them not only identify who the king is, but God's provision is involved in identifying where he's actually hiding so they can go on with the coronation day. Uh, And then it doesn't stop there. The Lord, when Samuel provides uh, Saul to the people and says, here is your king, he is the man the Lord is choosing, the the Samuel also gives him uh, instructions how he as a king should rule the people, what his responsibilities are and what his his rights are. This is the Lord providing the, the pattern, the setup for kingship. And then it doesn't stop there. The Lord provides also men of valor who accompany Saul 
in his new role. Look at verse 26. Saul also went to his home at Gibeah, and with him went men of valor, whose hearts God had touched. I wonder if you picked on that detail. Whose hearts God had touched. Do you see who's credited with recruiting a group of men of valor? It was not Saul's political platform. It was not Saul's motivational speech or his persuasive skills. It was not his courage or vision casting. Anything. All of that started on a wrong foot as this potential leader, candidate, was hiding himself. Giving the impression that he's He doesn't want to take the the kingship. Nevertheless, even on such a bad footing, the Lord touches the hearts of men of valor who would give their loyalty to Saul to accompany him and to to begin forming a group of of people who would would protect Saul. What encourages me about this moment in the story is is to put my confidence in the Lord who is able to change the hearts of people. Not in, not in gimmicks or in human solutions. Saul had none going for him except his height. A fearful, tall man. Lacking courage. Having a weakness for pleasing people and struggling with the fear of man. Yet despite his limitations, the Lord builds around him men who would serve him. Friends, after Israel's bad start that day, we would, experience, we would expect that God would turn away from his people. Let them loose. Let them do it on their own. Find a king on their own. Install him on their own. For God to say, you know what? You've turned away from me. I'll let you have it your way. You go do it on your own. But that is not what we see here. The Lord is intimately involved, closely engaged in every step of the way. And he provides solutions to the wrong turns, the the wrong but moments. Even though the Lord provides men with, um, who immediately become, be, uh, begin supporting Saul, even though there's rejoicing that day, <laughs> there's another but word that spoils this theme. And this last but uh, begins the, the, the third scene of the third point in our message. Despite the Lord's provision, some keep resisting. This is the third point. Despite the Lord's provision, Some keep resisting. How so? Look at verse 27. But some worthless fellows said, how can this man save us? Uh, Some of the people who received the news that Saul is king were suspicious. They were suspicious that that this human king could really save them. Now, if we took this verse out of context, we might say, well, that sounds right. They're never supposed to do this in the first place anyway. And they're not supposed to trust a human king anyway. But when we read the verse in context, which we're always supposed to do, so we don't take our own human interpretation out of it, when we read the context carefully, we are told that actually the people who turn suspiciously, they're not godly men. They're worthless men. They're actually a suspicious Not because of godly motives. They're suspicious because of ill motives. Uh, We're also told in in chapter 9 earlier in the story, uh, which we read last week, or I'm sorry, last time when we were in in this book, in chapter 9, verse 16, God decreed that he will raise up Saul 
to be the means by which God will save his people from their enemies. God intentionally said, I will raise up Saul, and through him, I will save my people from the Philistines. This was God saying it. This means that these men were worthless because they were not responding to God's plans with a willing heart. They did not believe that the king the Lord anointed was actually God's means to save his people from their enemies. God had raised an authority figure to govern them as their king. And now some men reject the one God raised up for them. Sometimes if we look at people only through the human lens, we become aware of their limitations. We become aware of their inadequacies. And it's easy to miss that they could be mediums used by the Lord to accomplish His plans in us. Some people have a gift of only looking at people's shortcomings. And this is what these men do in this moment, in the story. They're worthless men because they only look at Saul's shortcomings, at his limitations, and did not believe that God could use even a man who was suffering with a fear of man to bring about a great salvation. Friends, today it's easy to look upon the people that the Lord calls to serve him as spiritual leaders and to dismiss them because we become aware of some of their limitations. One of the lessons I have learned in recent years is that even the great heroes of the faith in the Christian church have had some aspect about them that seemed problematic. And it's easy to let those limitations appear so large in us, among us, or in front of us, that we distrust God's ability to use broken, imperfect candidates to accomplish His plans. Friends, I wonder, who are the people in your life that you have a tendency to dismiss? I wonder, are there any particular people whom God sets as authority over you that you have a tendency to dismiss because you see more clearly than others, perhaps, some aspect of their limitations? Are you the kind of person who, no matter what the issue is, you prefer to be the contrarian? Are you the first to point out a problem uh, in someone as opposed to looking at what the Lord is doing in them and through them? Here, these men are also worthless because they doubt that God's anointed king can be the means of salvation. Uh, this is not just that they doubt Saul. They doubt the Lord who has chosen Saul to do this work. Their suspicion is ultimately a suspicion about God's ability to use this king to bring salvation. Their, their question is so significant. Their confrontation is so serious that the entire chapter 11 is given for us as an answer to this question. Chapter 11 serves to answer the question that these men pose. The question is, how can this man save us? And this leads us to the final point. The undeserved outcome. The Lord saves through his king. The Lord saves through his king. Saul's timidity is no obstacle for the Lord. There is such a contrast between the Saul of chapter 10 and the Saul of chapter 11. In chapter 10, Saul is hiding, fearful of taking on the reign. He's got no courage for the kingship. In chapter 11, we hear that 
Saul becomes a fearless military leader who faces the first major challenge of his reign, the threat of an Ammonite king by the name of Nahash. Nahash attacked the people of Jabesh Gilead. And the people of Jabesh Gilead were willing to make a treaty with this pagan king to save their skin. How, how ironic. At the very moment when God finally gives them their, the first human king, here is this little town of Jabesh Gilead. And they are about to make a treaty and sign with their skin uh, in with taking an eye out that they will be servants of this pagan king. How ironic. Let this sink in. Uh, the Saul was just installed ev- as king, but the people of Abish Gilead are willing to sell themselves into the service of this other pagan king just to save their skins. The irony could not be stronger in this moment. King Nahash is a wicked king. He's willing to accept the deal on one condition, that they would gouge, that he would gouge out the right eye of all the people of Yabesh Gilead. It was a means of disgracing the people of God. It was also a means of ensuring that they could no longer be able to fight against Nahash. Because in ancient times, often the, 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 the armor um, was, such, it was used in such a way that it would cover the, the left eye and, and soldiers would only look with the right eye. That was a strategy for, for carrying your armor in battle. So in essence, when Nahash says, I want to gouge out your right eye, he's saying, I want to make sure you don't have a chance to fight back against me. And the people, when they hear this condition, they, they get exasperated. And nevertheless, they, they ask for some grace from Nahash. They say, would you give us seven days? <laughs> and listen to the question they're asking in verse 3. It's a wonderful question. He says, Give us seven days. Let us send some messages. Then if there's no one to save us, we will give ourselves up to you. This is the issue. If there's no one to save us. Now, why would Nahash agree to this deal? Why would they give him an option period? He agreed to it because he was convinced that nobody could come to their rescue. He was convinced nobody could could get them out of his hands at this point. He was a confident man in his own ability and in the the destitute situation of of all of Israel. Nobody could could muster up an army to fight against him. He was pretty confident. It is in this crisis that Saul steps in and is used by God to rally up Israel to go in battle against Nahash. How could such a timid Saul, who would rather hide among the luggage, turn out to be such an effective military leader? What military academy did he go to? What military experience did he have that prepared him for this this moment? None. We're told in verse 6, the Spirit of God rushed upon Saul. The Spirit of the Lord is enough to take a timid man, to take a fearful man, and make him accomplish the purposes of the Lord. After the battle, Saul declares the ultimate victory uh, of the ultimate source of their victory, it's not Saul's leadership. You know, I can, I can imagine how after this moment, the leadership gurus of the day would have written 12 ways to be a better leader from the life of Saul, from his first major victory. But no, there's no such thing happening. Saul 
gives the credit to where the credit is due. In verse 13, the first king of Israel says, Today the Lord has worked salvation in Israel. What a solid conclusion. Here is Israel's first king in his first battle, and he gives credit to where credit is due to God. Saul recognizes that it was not his leadership, not his skills, not the great number of Israelites. Friends, it was not his recruiting skills. It was the Lord who worked this salvation. And there's a great lesson at the beginning of this monarchy right now. Even with a king installed, the people need to know it is the Lord who works salvation. The people asked for a king who would fight their battles for them. But after the first battle, after the first crisis, Saul teaches his people, it's the Lord who works the salvation. This is a wonderful, this is a wonderful saving of a bad beginning. Even though Saul is now the king, he rightly points to the Lord who saves, who rescues, who redeems. Oh, friends, what's interesting about this first crisis of Saul and of this victory is that the name of the king he battles against. In Hebrew, the name Nahash means serpent. It's as if the first battle of God's first anointed human king is to face an enemy whose name reminds us of the serpent. The monarchy that God wants to establish through the choosing of the first king anticipates a later king who will come to crush the head of another serpent, a much fiery serpent, Satan. Friends, this episode of Saul facing the threat of Nahash and winning over him is the answer God provides to the question raised in chapter 10. Can this man save us? The answer is, if he is the Lord's anointed king, yes, the Lord's anointed king will prevail. This is the lesson at the beginning of this coronation experience in Israel. The Lord's anointed king will prevail against his enemies, especially against the ultimate enemy, who is a serpent. Oh, friends, I pray that we would see that in this, in this redeemed beginning, which went bad on so many details, the Lord restores, the Lord saves, the Lord shows us He's able to save through His anointed King. Friends, the ultimate anointed King that the Lord prepared to provide and has sent is Jesus Christ. He is the ultimate King of God's ultimate kingdom. And through him, through his reign, through his kingship, the Lord saves his people. When Jesus was on the cross, he was crucified. And what was written on the cross was king of the Jews. The Lord Jesus died as a king so that through his self-sacrifice, through his resurrection, he may rescue people. He may blow the death blow to the serpent and rescue people for God. Oh, friends, in this story of God rescuing a bad beginning, redeeming what went wrong in so many terms, God shows us that He is able to work out His salvation through the King He anoints. And thus God proves us once again that He's a God who saves His people from their distresses and calamities. May we turn not away from Him, but may we turn to Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who is able to take bad 
beginnings. Turns that have been made in a wrong direction away from you. And you're able to do that even today in our own lives. Lord, you know how each and every one of us have had ways in which we have turned away from you in the past. Perhaps there's some here among us who are right, right now in a season when they have still are turned away from you. Father, give us the grace to turn back to you with trust and reliance upon you. Because you are the God who saves us through your anointing king, King Jesus. Father, give us grace to turn to you in our difficulties, in our challenges. May we be a people who look to you for all our needs. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray.